This morning we begin a study of the Word of God as it's summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. I'd like to read Romans 8, but before that to read a few verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. If you would turn in the Holy Scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 1 to read verses 17 through 21, and then we'll go to Romans 8, and then we'll look at the church's confession. Based upon these passages and many others, Lord's Day 1, what is your only comfort in life and in death as we begin there? a study of the doctrines proclaimed, confessed by the church. 1 Peter chapter 1, at verse 17, and before we read that, let's ask for the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts, shall we? Gracious Father in heaven, we would say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray, Lord, you'd give us those ears and hearts to listen. And that you would indeed, the God of mercy, stoop down to speak to us through your holy scriptures and in the enlightening power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are the God of all comfort. And we pray that you would comfort our lives richly as we consider, O oh Lord, what that comfort is. In Jesus' name, hear us. Amen. First Peter 1 at verse 17, God's holy word. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, to that familiar and famous, glorious chapter of comfort, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give power, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. God's holy word. Let's turn from the word of God to our confession in the Forms and Prayers book. If there's anyone here unfamiliar with catechisms and confessions, 
They're not scripture, they're not equal to scripture, but these are summaries that the church has written to summarize the main teachings of the Bible or to settle controversies. And the Heidelberg Catechism is a very, very familiar catechism known throughout the world, and uh, no part of it is known better than Lord's Day 1. The catechism is divided into 52 Lord's Days, and the first one, Lord's Day 1, on page 201 in the Forms and Prayers book, the little book in the pew there, page 201. Very familiar and comforting confession. Lord, say one asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it answers that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then turning the page, question two asks, How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And it says three, and these will be the three parts of this catechism. We use it as a teaching tool to consider the main truths of Scripture. It's organized according to three parts. The three things we need to know to live and die in the joy of this comfort. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to thank God for such deliverance. People of God, we have heard a beautiful name this morning, Sarah Grace Dykstra, attached to a beautiful young life. But we've also heard a more beautiful name this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name of our God, attached to the precious life that was before us at the baptismal font. In baptism, God put his name on Sarah, and he said to her, you belong to me. That's what it means to be baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. God puts his name on us and he says, you belong to me. And I wonder if the significance of that strikes us as it should. Maybe it's helpful to remember that many, many people struggle with their identity. Our children grow up as young people. They often, as we all did, wrestle with the question, who am I? What's my purpose? Who am I? And we worry about the clothes we wear and the friends we have or or what we're good at and so forth. And we see in the culture around us uh, an identity crisis, don't we? A world that is so confused today about who we are. I mean, horrible things like young people shooting people, mass killings to try to establish a name for themselves. Or, Or now we have many people confused about their gender and want to change genders to try to find their their true self. We live in a culture that's lost its identity. In fact, we have all lost our identity. And that happened at the moment Adam and Eve said to God, No, not your way, but our way. At that moment, they cast off God's claim, and they chose for themselves a different identity, or they tried to, to become like God. But the God of grace, already in Genesis 3, stooped all the way down from heaven to reclaim his people and to put his name upon them, and to bring them back to his side, to own them as his own again. 
And God continues that grace that's come now in the Lord Jesus. And he, he signifies that in baptism as he puts his name upon us. He says to Sarah, he said to us all, I am yours and you are mine. You belong to me. And this morning we confess that the only comfort we really need as believers for now and for eternity is this, that we belong to the Lord Jesus. The only comfort we need for body and for soul, for life and for death is this, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a very particular kind of belonging. It's not... It's not the way your, your possessions belong to you. It's not the way your tires belong to you. This is a belonging of love, of love. God has set his love on us. And this morning, I want to focus with you upon this truth, that apart from this loving belonging, life has no meaning. It has no purpose. S.G. de Graaf, uh, Dutch minister, late Dutch minister, who wrote some great books, Promise and Deliverance, uh, we can talk about later, but he also wrote a commentary on the Heidelberg in the first half of it, and he, he speaks about this, and it was very helpful to me to think about how meaningless life is apart from belonging to the love of the Lord. If this bond of loving fellowship with God does not exist, then life is futile. It's aimless, as Peter said. Today we want to hear the good news, that in this love of the Lord, everything has meaning and purpose. And I want you to ask yourself as you hear the word this morning, are you living in that identity that your life belongs to Jesus, to this Lord who loves you, and therefore your life has meaning and purpose in the Lord. Let's consider this truth, that Christ has restored us to God's love, which makes our life meaningful. Noticing, first of all, that we've been redeemed by Christ from a futile existence. We've been restored to the Father's purposeful plan, secondly. And thirdly, our life is renewed by the Spirit to a service of significance. First of all, redeemed by Christ from a futile Existence. We confess in Lord's Day 1, our only comfort in life and in death, that I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Peter tells believers that they have been redeemed from aimless conduct, from a futile existence of their pagan lifestyle handed down to them by their fathers. That's interesting, isn't it, that many people in the world don't see their lives in those terms. In fact, do you realize that none of us are able to see the futility of life apart from God's word? Everybody in the world says things are not perfect. Everybody in the world says there's, there's pain and there's trouble. We're all agreed on that, right? But if you don't know your trouble through the word of God, then you settle for half comforts and no comforts. Some years ago, the URC congregation in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, went out at a town festival with a video recorder or camera or phone and uh, asked people on the streets the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? You can watch the video on YouTube, but you can also imagine how that went. What is my only comfort in life and death? What? Never thought of that. I'll have to think about that. Kinds of answers. And just they pressed people into it. People said, well, I don't know. My mom brings me a lot of comfort. Family and friends bring me a lot of comfort. One lady said, you know, a hot bath and then to bed brings me comfort. Another man says, classical music, that brings me such comfort. What about your comfort in death? Somebody said, well, if somebody dies, they die. If they live, they live. There's nothing you can do about it. Just accept it. Someone else said, well, if somebody dies, you don't have to worry about them anymore. What about your comfort in death? One girl said, I don't know. How could I know? I'm not dead yet. Someone else said, well, I love nature. I can't wait for my ashes to be scattered among the trees. 
That's just a sampling, isn't it, of the kind of responses we'd get if we could actually get people to answer the question. The people that have all kind of half comforts and no comforts because they have no idea of how deep their need is for comfort. What is our, our greatest need for comfort? We have many things we feel, but what is our great need for comfort? It's this, that we are, by nature, under the wrath of God. That God, the living God, is against us. We need comfort. We need grace. Only the Word of God tells us how deep our trouble is. Otherwise, we're satisfied with comforts like riches and houses and trucks and good jobs and fine friends and entertainment. Otherwise, we're convinced that life has meaning, even though we're so confused about our highest purpose. Everybody has some sense of what they think meaningful life is. If I just have this, if I just have this, then my life has meaning and purpose. We're far too easily satisfied. We need the Word of God to come and to cut through all the phony comforts of the world and to expose us that we need a real comfort. And the Word of God does that, doesn't it? Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is presently in this world being revealed. And that wrath is, is God's anger. It's, it's the curse. It's what makes life futile. That all the good things God has given and all that he made us for, when we turn away from God now, futility, the, the curse of, of meaninglessness, has set in. And even the things that people count so much comfort in, most people they interviewed talked about families being their comfort. But you know, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Even these relationships so prized by nearly everyone, these bonds of family are, apart from Christ, they're under the curse. In the end, they're void. They're empty. They're meaningless. But the Christian confesses that he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Now that sounds impractical and that sounds far-fetched and it just sounds like so much mumbo-jumbo to the one who doesn't know his sin and his guilt. But if we know that we have forfeited the meaning of life and the purpose of life, we've come under the curse of God and become a slave of Satan, then this is truly good news. S.G. DeGraff, who I mentioned a moment ago, writes, It is through the power of Satan that life is subjected to vanity, no matter how beautiful and how rich it may appear to be at times. Life serves no real purpose then, for everything that belongs to Satan is meaningless, even... His own existence is senseless. He is against himself. Thus he has also imprinted a stamp of senselessness on all of life. Satan's life is the ultimate in futility, isn't it? For this creature to have rebelled against God and to lead a campaign against the Lord, his whole existence is futile. But, but everything he's touched also becomes then meaningless, all those who come under his power. But the precious blood of Jesus Christ has done something for us, Peter says. You've been redeemed. You've been bought back. You've been brought to the Lord. Because Jesus, by his blood, has paid the price of your ransom. He's not paid to Satan. He's paid it to God's justice. But God had given Satan the power of death, right? Satan accused us. 
Satan was allowed to accuse us, but now Jesus has made full payment for all of our sins. All of that rebellion, all of our casting off of our true identity to seek ourselves, Jesus has paid for that by his precious blood. We've been redeemed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the love we we refused from God and the love we refused to give to God, that was our sin. See, God has brought us back. And so Paul can say in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God has declared us acceptable. God has justified us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn us? Our Redeemer is at God's right hand interceding for us. We have been bought back. And so the Apostle will go on in Romans 14 to to make that glorious declaration. Romans 14, verses 7 through 9. Romans 14, verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. That's my comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but belong to this Jesus who fills my life with meaning. Satan is still busy in the world, but he doesn't have power to destroy our lives. He doesn't have power to render our lives purposeless and meaningless anymore. We've been restored to the love of our Father in heaven. And we are under the lordship, not of Satan, but under the dominion, under the dominion of Christ's love. So that's the solution, isn't it? The solution to be set free by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Last year, Crossroads Prison Ministry in their newsletter told the story of a man who had received their ministry and it greatly helped. Makawi, who was a crooked cop in South Africa, he writes, I, I wasn't honest at all. Illegal selling of firearms and ammunition, accepting bribes, stealing from people I was supposed to protect. I was the worst evil cop in the whole world, and that did not bother me. Instead, I was enjoying each and every evil I was doing. But he comes into prison, he gets found out for his crimes, he gets put in prison, and he he comes to know the Lord. He comes to know the Lord. And he says, then everything changed. Today I can tell the whole world that I'm now free from the bondage of the devil. I'm no more the old person I used to be. I'm now a new creature in Christ. I'm still in the correctional center, but I'm totally free in my soul since I've surrendered my life to God. Set free from the tyranny of the devil set free by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it glorious what the blood of Jesus does? takes all these lives under the curse and restores them to the favor and the fellowship of the living God. We have been redeemed from a futile existence. But then secondly, this morning, notice we've been restored to the Father's purposeful plan. What is God's great purpose for our lives? You can think of different scriptures or different confessions. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We exist to bring God glory and a glory in which we enjoy the Lord God. There's no higher purpose. We were redeemed for this. We were created for this. We were recreated for this. Now, Satan tricked Adam and Eve into believing that the really good life was the life God was withholding from them. 
You can be like God. They didn't realize, of course, that they were already like God in the only way they could be like God as creatures. And so they went for it, right? And to disobey God did not bring them fulfillment. Because fulfillment for the image bearer of God is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Can we believe this morning that being restored to God's purpose, that in that is our happiness? Can we believe that that God's not withholding the good from us, as Satan alleged, but that God seeks our greatest good? If God is for us, who can be against us? Have you ever pondered that? What that means, God for us? We are supposed to be for God, we know that. But what's it mean that God is for us? It means he did not spare his own son for us. Delivered him up to the curse of futility for all of us. And he with Christ then will surely give us all things. God is not against us. If God was against us, then it doesn't really matter what we think our meaning and purpose in life is. We could have the biggest business in the world. We could have the the best family in the world. We could have the healthiest body. We could have the greatest hobbies in the world. If God is against you, it means nothing. It's all empty. It's all void. It's all about to collapse. It's all under God's curse. But if God is for you, it's the opposite, right? You could be a believer being led to the stake to be burned alive. And if God is for you, you are the richest person in the world. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 8. He said, what should we say to all these things? What can we say to this? To be reconciled to God, to be adopted as his children, to be, to be given his Holy Spirit, to have an inheritance in heaven. What shall we say to all this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? God is for us. He's our Father. He's for us. And he's not for us just in some general way, but he is for us in the particulars of our lives. So we confess that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Because Jesus said all the hairs of our heads are numbered. What a comprehensive care. Sometimes I open packages to put together some new piece of furniture or whatever it might be and Notice sometimes, you know, when you open up the package with all the hardware, then the instructions, the first thing it says is to take out all the hardware and count it all up. Make sure it's all there. <laughs> I think, no, that was your job. I'm just going to put this together. But I don't feel like counting it all up in all these details. I hope it's there. I'll, I'll call them if it's not there when I get done and it doesn't fit or something. But I don't want to worry about the details. Jesus reveals a Father in heaven and never says that about his children. He never says your lives are complicated, they're busy kind of busy right now myself down to the hairs on our head every one of them they exit our head at his command that means that all the endless seemingly insignificant and purposeless details of our lives have in our father's hand meaning and purpose We see in our lives a pile of nuts and bolts and screws that we can't make sense of. Or we see in our lives all these details and they're not going well and we think there's a lot more thought given to that package of hardware than there was given to my life. And God says, not so. Not so. 
from the God who foreknew you, the God who predestined you, the God who called you, the God who justified you, and the God who will glorify you. All the details of your life are significant to me. They've all been designed by my sovereign hand. And they're ruled by me for your good. Romans 8.28, that wonderful verse is proclaiming that truth, that all things work together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose, his purpose. All things. doesn't mean that all things are good, does it? But it means that all things are so being ruled by God and woven by God and worked by God that they will tend to our great good. And what's our great good? That you may be conformed to the image of his Son, Paul says. It's your great good to be made like Jesus so that you love to glorify God and you do enjoy God. That's your great good. We see paths cut off and we see roads closed and we see things broken and ruined. And we say at times, where's the good in this? We see lost opportunities. And we see sickness or disease or things that we think cripple our service to the Lord. We think, I could do a lot more for the Lord if I didn't have this in my life. This is in the way. It's not for my good. And God says, not so. All things. I'm at work in all things for your good. And our Father's love for us, to which we have been restored through Christ Jesus, we may be certain that not a single detail of our lives, not a single evil thing done to us, not a loss of any kind, is purposeless or loveless or without grace. But in the Father's hand, every detail of our lives is being pressed into the ultimate purpose. To make us like Christ Jesus. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Every scrape and every wound has a foreordained purpose. There are no accidents with our God. We have been restored to the Father's purposeful plan. And in this hand of God, he is preserving our reconciliation with him. He is preserving our faith. He's preserving our lives. And we can rejoice this morning that our our safety does not rest in our own hands, but our lives rest in the hands of God. We may look, we may appear, Paul says in Romans 8, as sheep being led to the slaughter. It's how we look in the eyes of the world. It's how the believer often appears, right? Believers persecuted, believers harassed, Satan working his works. We look like sheep led to the slaughter. But in all these things, we are survivors. No, in all these things, we are conquerors. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What an amazing confession. My life is not my own. I so belong to this God who has loved me in Christ that in all the troubles of this world, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. Nothing in all of the world can rob you of God's loving purpose for your life. Nothing. Not even your own sin. What a day to remember our baptism. 
to know that God has not just spoken a word to our ears, but he was pleased to visibly display it. What a great word for Sarah Grace this morning. What a great sign for her that Jill gets to tell her about, that God that God spoke her name and he spoke his name over her and he, he gave a clear sign that as real as that water, so really is my covenant love for you. Remember your baptism today. Rejoice in that. That in God's purposeful plan, your life is secure. But then finally this morning, notice that we've also been renewed by the Spirit to a service of significance. The world is full of wasted lives, wasted efforts, wasted time. A world in service to Satan. What? What a sad sight. All these image bearers of God living under the dominion of the evil one. All their efforts, what's it for? A kingdom that will not last. But the Spirit makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Jesus. That's what we confess in Lord's Day 1. There is a Lord worth living for. There is a kingdom worth living for. There is a kingdom that lasts. And so Paul can say at the end, do you remember what it is at the end of that resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15? Do you remember how it ends? A whole chapter on the resurrection and what's the conclusion? Therefore, your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Because Christ lives, your labors in the Lord are not futile. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord and their works follow them. Look at your life. Isn't it marvelous to have a purpose, an everlasting purpose? Now, none of us naturally want to serve the Lord. Even that desire has to be a gracious work of the Spirit because as Romans 8 says in verses 7 and 8, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is, is enmity, it's hatred towards God doesn't want to serve God. But the good news is that you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You have a, a new heart. Loves the Lord and his purposes. So Paul will go on in Romans 12 to, to call us to do what? To give God a little more? No, but to give God everything. To present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's your reasonable service. And that's what the Spirit produces. It's not you and I who, who stirred ourselves up to serve God, but it's the Spirit of God. As John Preston said it 400 years ago, we are no more able to love the Lord than cold water is able to heat itself. So the Holy Ghost must breathe that fire of love in us. It must be kindled from heaven or else we shall never have it. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit has been given me. Not just Christ by His blood redeemed me. Not just the Father watches over me. But the Spirit has been given me to make me willing and ready to serve my Lord. What a gift. The Spirit of God laboring in us. But He also, and this is actually where it begins, He assures Him of eternal life. The Spirit of God. What kind of service would we render to the Lord if we were not assured of eternal life? It would be the service of slaves, the service of those trembling in fear, but not the service of sons, which is what God seeks. Faith is the gift of the Spirit. Faith is a tremendous gift. The Spirit is a tremendous gift as He bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. By the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. The tremendous 
sinful creatures, little ants upon the earth, and we look up to the almighty sovereign of the universe and we cry out, Father? Not by some vain imagination of ours, but by the truthful spirit within us. The glorious thing to call God our Father. And you see what the Spirit does as you look at the Apostle Paul's life. And that with all that the Apostle had been through, he could still say, Romans 8.38, For I am persuaded, I am convinced, he says, that nothing in all of creation will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Spirit loves to give that kind of confidence. Don't believe anyone who says that you live a better Christian life if you have doubts. It is not true. You live a faithful Christian life, and a God-glorifying Christian life, when you can say, I am convinced, I am persuaded that there's nothing in the whole creation, not Satan himself, who will ever separate me from the love of God. We need that assurance. We need that assurance. That creates confidence and joy and makes us want to serve the Lord all the more. We need that confidence to stand firm against temptation. We need that confidence to stand firm against despair. We need that confidence to live for our Lord. And then in giving ourselves to the Lord and to his holy purpose, then all the more we begin to see how much God loves us and how wonderful his kingdom is. Because life is filled with meaning and communion with the Lord. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who says that you know, my life doesn't feel very purposeful. It feels kind of meaningless. We all struggle with that at times, don't we? But then the question is, what do we do? Are we content to live with our feelings, or do we go back to the Word and say, what does the Word say about my life in Christ Jesus? Do we draw near to the Lord and to His purposes? Do we try to see more and more of His glory, God worth living for? Sometimes our lives are purposeless. They feel purposeless anyway, I should say. Because we're serving ourselves instead of the Lord. We're serving ourselves instead of the Lord. But to serve the Lord is to see again what a joy to have been delivered from a futile existence. Arnold Delamore, in his biography of that famous English preacher of the 19th century, Charles Hayden Spurgeon, he devotes a chapter to Mrs. Spurgeon in his book. If you don't know it, Mrs. Spurgeon was a semi-invalid for most of her life. She often couldn't go to hear her husband preach. was confined to home. But she, by the Lord's providence, stumbled upon a ministry of providing books to poor pastors which she found out was a tremendous need. So she joyfully took up this work in weakness and physical pain. And it turned out that this ministry actually did so much for her soul. Charles Spurgeon said of his wife, Susanna, I gratefully adore the goodness of our Heavenly Father in directing my beloved wife to a work which has been to her fruitful and unutterable happiness. That it has cost her more pain than would be fitting to reveal is most true. But that it has brought her boundless joy is equally certain. Later he says, Let every believer accept this as the inference of experience, 
that for most human maladies, the best relief and antidote will be found in self-sacrificing work for the Lord Jesus. And Mrs. Spurgeon herself testified, My days have been made indescribably bright and happy by the delightful duties connected with this work. I seem to be living in an atmosphere of blessing and love and can truly say with the psalmist, My cup runneth over. The Holy Spirit has renewed you to a service of significance. Don't let Satan tell you otherwise. Don't spend your life serving yourself. Return to the Redeemer who has spilt his blood, his precious blood for you, and pour out your life, whatever God has given you to do, for his glory. Enjoy his love, bask in his love, rejoice in the confidence that Christ has done it all. He has paid your full price. Rejoice in the love of your Father. Rejoice in his sovereign hands that hold you tightly and govern the details of your life. Rejoice in the service of a kingdom that will last for eternity. And pray for the grace of the Spirit to have a boldness that the Apostle Paul had to say day after day, I am convinced, I am persuaded, I belong to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word and for the glorious assurances that we are yours. We confess, O Lord, we forget this. We don't live in the reality of it. We are distracted by worries and troubles and fears. We often wrestle, Lord, with a feeling of purposelessness. We see a groaning world around us, and we too groan. Set our eyes, we pray, upon the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has restored us to you and to your kingdom. Help us, O Lord, by your Spirit, to have the kind of perspective and assurance that we need. And help us as your church to lead a lost world to see how futile is existence outside of your love. O God, we pray, bless your church with the ministry you've assigned her. In Jesus' name, amen.